As long as the U.S. Congress has existed, members have been getting in trouble. Teapot Dome, Abscam, Jack Abramoff, all scandals that either cost members their seats or sent them off to jail. But back in 1930, another scandal hit the front pages of newspapers across the country just weeks before the midterm elections. It was a scandal that changed the course of American history, one that cost Republicans their majority and rolled back a decade of prohibition. It involved a man in a green hat and the cases of illegal liquor he carried through the halls of Congress every day. Hey, I'm Reed Wilson, and you're listening to The Hills History Cast, a podcast on the history and culture of American politics. Our story starts today in the days after World War I, when a West Virginia native named George Cassidy returned from army service in Europe looking for a job. Prohibition had taken effect a few months earlier, but while sales of alcohol were banned, a robust black market was starting to take shape, especially on Capitol Hill. He had moved from West Virginia, moved his family to D.C., was looking for something, you know, to, uh, uh, to do, and uh, was told that, uh, you know, bootlegging actually might make a pretty good uh, living, and especially that Capitol Hill was a good place to do it. That's Michael Lowe, the co-founder of New Columbia Distillery. We visited Michael and his partner John Uselton at their facility in an industrial part of Northeast Washington, where they make their small batch spirits. I was retired and bored, uh, and, uh, and John was uh, working at a liquor store uh, on Capitol Hill, and um, we decided we wanted to sort of explore some you know, possible projects and quickly realized that uh, D.C. had not had a distillery in 100 years. New Columbia's signature product is called Green Hat Gin, a product inspired by George Cassidy. We asked Michael and John to tell us Cassidy's story. Cassidy started small. He delivered moonshine and whiskey and pretty much anything else he could get his hands on to the southern congressman who became his first customers. Garrett Peck, who wrote about Cassidy in his book Prohibition in Washington, D.C., says Cassidy's reputation got around pretty quickly. Word of mouth quickly spread. <laughs> so within a few more days, he's got quite a number of, of other customers who are also interested in getting a supply of whiskey. And, and by the way, these are all congressmen who all voted for prohibition, but they still had every intention of still drinking. Cassidy later described the recipe that made him so famous. Quote, Using one gallon of pure rye whiskey as base, adding one gallon of pure grain alcohol and one gallon of hot water from the spigot, and then adding a little bouquet of coloring, I found it was possible to turn out 12 parts of about 90 to 96 proof that was entirely satisfactory. Soon enough, Cassidy had such a regular business going that he was given an office, a small supply closet in the basement of the Cannon House office building. Consider that, at the height of Prohibition, Congress was so thirsty for booze that they let their own bootlegger move right in. Members of Congress started hanging around in Cassidy's makeshift office. His favorite customers made up the Barflies Association. They would use a special knock to get in the door, drink a few rounds, sing a few songs, before venturing out for the evening, according to the historian Jane Armstrong Hudderberg. Then again, even at the height of Prohibition, members of Congress were a thirsty lot, and plenty of bootleggers plied their trade in the halls. The New York Times reported that in January 1923, two bootleggers started a fight over a disputed territory in the House office building. The Capitol building, where the dry laws for the nation were made, has been a distributing point for wet goods for many months, the Baltimore Sun wrote a few months later. Peck says Congress had simple tastes, 
but Cassidy spent a lot of his time hauling heavy suitcases back and forth. Uh, predominantly what Congress wanted when he bootlegged was whiskey. And uh, he would actually jump on the train a couple times a week and head up the Northeast Corridor to a couple different cities and get his resupply. So he had very, very good connections. And he went to, to, uh, to, to Baltimore, to Newark, Delaware, to Philadelphia, and a few other places. And he'd pick up the booze on the train. If he needed an extra large shipment, uh, he would take a friend with him, and they would actually use suitcases. <laughs> and they would simply haul it back on the train. <laughs> All good things come to an end, though, and in 1925, Capitol Police busted Cassidy with a suitcase full of hooch, what they described in their report as poor-quality whiskey. The newspaper report on the bust didn't name him, but they did make a point to say that the bootlegger had been arrested wearing a green felt hat, which gave him his nickname. Men especially wore hats back then, and we don't wear hats anymore except when it's really cold or to a baseball game. But (laughs) back then, if you didn't have a hat in your head and if you're going outside, you were kind of naked. It was considered to be gauche not to have a hat on. But instead of giving up the bootlegging game, Cassidy just took his business to the other side of the Capitol. After that uh, bust, he uh, had to move his operation to the basement of the Russell Senate office building um, and continued there for the next five years. Even today, the Senate has a reputation for being the calmer, more staid chamber of commerce. Back then, Cassidy contrasted what he called the, quote, general spirit of good fellowship and conviviality in the House and a much more cautious Senate. Instead of dealing with senators directly, Cassidy said senators usually sent their staffers to restock their supplies. One senator asked Cassidy to hide his delivery behind his copies of the congressional record. By 1930, word had gotten around that someone was supplying booze to members of Congress. So Cassidy had another run-in with the Capitol Police, this time in the Senate stationary room. He wasn't carrying any alcohol at the time, But he did have a little black book, which contained the names of his customers, including a shocking number of senators, congressmen, and their staff. That book, sadly, is lost to history. Cassidy was sentenced to six months in prison, though it was a pretty light sentence. Cassidy got to serve his time at a jail right on Capitol Hill, and the warden let him out every night at 5 p.m. so he could go home and have dinner with his family. He'd go over there every day, sign himself in, hang out with the warden and the the, the other guards, (laughs) and play guards and whatnot, and then... Uh, he was a nonviolent felon. So at night he would check himself out, go home, sleep in his own bed, and then come back the next morning. He did this for three months, and then... <laughs> After serving his sentence, Cassidy was approached by the Washington Post. The paper wanted him to write about his experience bootlegging for Congress. Cassidy's first front-page story hit the papers just weeks before the 1930 midterm elections as Prohibition-backing Republicans in Congress were fighting to hold their majorities. He writes six front-page articles for the Washington Post and completely spills the beans on Congress. I mean, it's just stunning. He did everything except name the names of individual customers. Um, And the articles, as you might imagine, were quite scandalous. A few weeks later, voters went to the polls, and the Republican Prohibition-backing majority was wiped out. Democrats who opposed Prohibition won back 52 seats and control of the House by just a single vote. With that election, we went from having an ostensibly dry Republican majority to not to now an openly wet Democratic majority that is now calling for an end to prohibition. So he really did have a big impact on the midterm election in 1930. Two years later, Franklin Roosevelt won the White House, and within eight months, the 21st Amendment repealing prohibition won approval. We're still living with the legacy of prohibition today, almost 100 years after it passed. Alcohol is treated differently under every state's laws, 
So some states maintain a monopoly on booze sales and others allow privately run businesses to sell directly to consumers. Some counties, those mostly in the South, are still dry counties. And the forms that Michael Lowe and John Uselton had to fill out to open their own distillery here in D.C. are the same forms that were required just after Prohibition. Here's John. 90% of these federal laws that we are abiding by are, were all written basically the day after Prohibition ended. Um, so, you know, when we look at regulations and stuff and the, the forms we have to fill out, these are all forms that basically were, were come up with in the 30s. I mean, it, it's, it's insane. I mean, it's like every, everything, we can go back and look at it, it's the same form that you would have filled out in 1936. Maybe you live in a state like Virginia or Pennsylvania where you can only buy your liquor in state-run stores. That's also a part of Prohibition's legacy. The, the biggest holdover um, that we have to deal with and that people around the country deal with are what are called control states. Places like Virginia and Pennsylvania um, you know, and, you know, lots of states, especially in the South and Midwest, um, where the, the state government, um, uh, in response to prohibition being eliminated, took a state monopoly on the distribution of, in particular, spirits. Um, and so in Virginia, it's still there. Um, you know, we've got lots of customers in Virginia, but uh, we can't sell to them directly. We can't even take stuff over, you know, for them to sample um, because everything uh, that goes, you know, from our distillery to Virginia, we have to take to a warehouse uh, down in Richmond, uh, and it's then distributed by the state uh, with a very substantial markup. Even some of our cocktail culture comes from Prohibition, when a lot of the alcohol being produced in home stills and bathtubs kind of tasted like gasoline. Because so much of the alcohol was so nasty during Prohibition, so a lot of the bartenders had to find ways of masking the horrible flavor of it. This is why uh, RC Cola, Cola became a big mixer. So how you get like Jack and Jack and Coke, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the stuff comes from Prohibition. You end up having a lot of, of sugary drinks that develop because of Prohibition to mask this rotgut liquor. States are still tinkering with their liquor laws too. In March, Minnesota passed a new law allowing alcohol sales on Sundays. My friends who are Vikings fans are pretty happy about that one. So the next time you pour your favorite drink, raise a glass to George Cassidy, the man in the green hat, Congress's unofficial bootlegger, and the man who helped speed the end of Prohibition. Hey, we'd love to hear your feedback. Email us at podcast at thehill.com and let us know if there's some interesting aspect of politics that you want to know more about. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud, however you get your podcasts. If you like what you've heard so far, leave us a review on one of those platforms. You can follow us also on Instagram and Twitter at Hill History Cast for a behind-the-scenes look at how we put together some of these episodes. Our thanks this week to Michael Lowe, John Uselton, and Garrett Peck, and to Jane Armstrong Hudderberg, who wrote a great history of Prohibition in Congress for the U.S. Capitol Historical Society's magazine, The Capitol Dome, in the winter 2015-2016 edition. Thanks to Moral Whiteman and Lisa Rule, our producers. Now, I think it's time we all go have a green hat gin and tonic. <laughs>